Welcome to AUCD Network Narratives, where we share real stories from our members. I'm your host, J.D. Flores, a self-advocacy discipline coordinator at the Strong Center for Developmental Disabilities and the co-chair for the Council on Leadership and Advocacy. Join us as we hear from inspiring leaders within our network working to make a change. Today's episode features Ida Winners from the Wisconsin USED and Lund program. Ida is a Black mother of three young men with special health care needs, one of whom also has autism. She facilitates a support group for Autism Society of Southeastern Wisconsin called Morning Coffee for parents who have children on the spectrum, and she loves it. She considers herself to be a bridge between the community and the professionals or providers who work with them. JD and Ida discuss the experiences of both of their families. Ida shares about the imposter syndrome she had to overcome in her work, as well as the challenges she faced as a Black family leader at her center. Listen in. So Ida, can you tell me a little bit about your advocacy style and some of, I think what you, what I would say is, no, you know what, no. Let's just go there. Tell me some, like a little bit about your advocacy style. So for me, my advocacy style is pretty much organic. I just advocate for whoever. A parent of three children with special health care needs. The youngest one has autism. And it was kind of the youngest one that started me on my advocacy journey. And the person that I needed during that time wasn't available. My style is based around being that person that I needed. What do you, what was really missing for you? There was no support. So in the black community growing up, it was like the answer to everything. Go to church, pray about it, get the demon out or whatever, or talk to the elders, or they just need a good spanking and some discipline. They need home training. And that wasn't working for me. My son, he was sweet. He was just really active. He was very happy in everything. But I can tell his needs weren't being met. And I didn't know how to meet him. I didn't know how to find somebody to help me meet him. I didn't know exactly what he needed. And I was kind of forced in situations. And I look back at how my mother didn't really make choices or decisions. She did what she was told to do or what she thought or felt she had to do. And I don't know, I wanted options. You know, you say that and it makes me think about my mom and, and my journey with her as, you know, I grew up, I felt like I didn't experiment sometimes because I felt like she yielded to a lot of the professionals in the room until like things had to be like super, super extreme that like she didn't agree with, like that like just were like not gonna fit. So like one, one of the things I could think of is, I had a, a, this huge surgery when I was a kid. It was my legs were just kind of given out. They were just, I don't know why it happened. But it, so they, one of the things that they had offered her, one of the options was like to insert this pump into my stomach that would, then she would insert some medicine to it. And then it would like somehow do something. I can't really remember all the logistics, but my brother was five years old at the time. And the first thing that happened when I brought my power chair home was we put a hole in the wall. Like we broke the wall, like we just a huge hole. And so she was like, nope, that pump sounds dangerous. It sounds like they're going to break it. It sounds like she's going to get hurt. It sounds like a no for us. Like it's not going to work for our family. And so when they were clear cut things like that, that like just didn't make sense, she would push against. But outside of that, she would really yield uh, to the professionals in the room. And that to me, like 
I mean, I'm not, I don't want to sound like I'm ungrateful for all the things that she did, like, because I am who I am, but it was, I feel like it made it a little difficult now for me to trust a lot of providers and stuff because of how things happened and took place when I was younger. I'm like in the, in the healthcare realm, I would say. You know, you're correct because I struggle with that a lot. Like I was sick all the time as a child and my mother's like, well, the doctor said you're too young to be sick. So you're not sick. Go do this or go do that. And I thought about it. Like my son, he was in K3 and constantly being sent home and they're suggesting he's put on medication. He does this, this and that. And I'm like, okay, they said in order for him to stay in class, he needs to be put on medication. I go, I get him put on medication, but I see how unhappy he is. And he's like physically sick, throwing up, can't eat everything. And I'm like, okay, when he's unhappy, everybody else is happy. But when he's happy, nobody else is happy. And I was left there trying to figure out what should I do? Worry about his happiness or others. So the medication, I stopped giving it to him. And we did therapy for a while. And in order for him to stay to school, stay in school, I had to stay in school with him. That was fine. I stayed in class with him. He was staying there. He was going to be treated like the other children. He was going to get his social interaction. And he was going to learn. I am not a teacher. He was not going to stay at home with me. So we stayed in school. I mean, I think that my mom, I would say, in that, in like, she was like that for my brother. So I, my brother, he was diagnosed with ADHD, like all black and brown kids in the 90s. I remember her carrying around this pink and white book that would like supposedly tell you all the things that is ADHD. But my mom didn't speak English. This book was in English. It just wasn't really helpful. But I felt like, you know, providers treated it like it was Bible. So she felt like she had to take it everywhere with her. And when it came time for him to get older, you know, the older you get in school, the more quick they're like medication, medication, medication. And my mom, she conceded, but only for the weekday. She would she would give him meds. While he was in school and on Friday, at, like Friday to Sunday, no meds. And they were like, oh, well, you're not really giving the meds opportunity. No, he's in my home. I'm, he's fine. I'm not, you know, what is it that he needs meds for in my home? And so, again, this was a clear cut way where she felt like it, it didn't fit our, our family. It didn't fit the makeup of who we were. So she would push against it in her own way. And I think that that was like the prime example of her advocacy style as she continued to push and navigate what the service system really looked like for us um, in our state. Right. That's a big issue. When my son was taking the medication, I didn't let the school give it to him. I made sure he had it every morning before he went to school myself. But the school was aware that he took medication and they kind of used it as a weapon against him. I let parents know, you know, this could be a gift. It could be a curse. Depends on how you look at it and what type of understanding you have with the school. We know he's on medication. And if something happens, it'll always be his fault. And we'll always say, did you take your medication today? And my son, he was proud. My mom always gives me my medication before I go to school. You know, and he's feeling like he's a good boy doing the right thing until the students start saying, did you take your medication today? He didn't take his medication today. 
that education where you know you educate the child and they know what the purpose is of the medication why it is that they take it what each medication is supposed to do and even saying how the medication makes you feel he thought when he would take the medication and he felt sick and everything he thought he felt fine not realizing that the medication is making him feel sick but he's thinking medication when I take it I feel normal and people are okay with me they're happy with me and it's like I never went into explaining that part the part was you were supposed to take the medication and everybody around you will like you and that's such a I hate that right like that's such a gut punch, right? Because we want to love you who you are for who you are, right? Like regardless of meds or no meds, right? Like my little brother is who he is. He's a quirky kid with quirky facts that like just has ants in his pants. He can't sit still. Like he, even as an adult, we can't, as two adults, grownups, we can't go in a restaurant and sit next to, next to each other. Like it's too much. Like his movement drives me insane. But he just, you know, that's how he self-soothes. That's how, like, that's what works for him. Like he just... Other than ants in his pants, like, I have no other way of explaining, like, he's always been just a wiggly kid. Like, that's just who he is. And, you know, him not, I think for me, as his big sister, who is super, super overprotective of of just the people I love, it took me a long time to be able to say to other people, hey, bro, like, don't say that to my brother. Like, don't, don't ask him those kind of questions. That's none of your business. Like, and I think that ultimately was one of the reasons why my mom was like, he didn't take meds for long. He took meds for maybe two years and my mom was like, I don't see a big difference. I don't, I get you're pushing this, but like, no, we need a better option. We need other, you know, alternatives. And again, that goes back, like I said, I think it just is when she felt things were super, super dire is when she like really her advocacy bones were like, no, like I'm going to push against this. And I think some of it is the language barrier, but other parts of it is like, as moms, y'all know, like, right. Y'all have like this in tune touch with your children that like you know what works best what isn't what isn't fitting especially when your kid's superhero for so long like you really have this like in tune feeling of what's not working what isn't going to work and and why you have to push against specific things can you tell me like as you've grown in this you know advocacy arena in healthcare in a you said can you tell me what some of the barriers you feel like have been for you so for me One of the biggest barriers is that imposter syndrome. We all know how it just comes up and you're always there like, do I belong here? Should I be at this table? Especially when you get that pushback from the people who've always been at the table and this is how we've always done it and this is how it's always going to be done. And you're coming in as, well, I'm just a mom or I'm just a community person or I just work at this place or... I don't really know anything about this. I do the advocacy. Like my mother didn't know how to advocate. So she didn't teach me. Her mother didn't know how to advocate. Nobody taught us. So we're kind of learning along the way. And a lot of time you're like, am I doing this right? Is this where I should be? Am I teaching this to my children? Did I step in when I should have? Was I out of bounds? You do a lot of questioning yourself. But at the end of the day, you think about it. Did I do any good? Am I making an impact? I've been with working with you said and the programs and having a seat at the table. I had to learn how not to be the meal because you get a lot of questions a lot of time. It's like, what do black people want? 
I'm only one black person. I can only tell you about this one black person. And a lot of time when I try and speak for the other four black people in my house, they're telling me I'm wrong. You know, to be able to speak up and say, I can't answer for everybody or I don't know the answer for this or even a lot of times to say that won't work. I've also learned that to be true to yourself in the end, we want to do everything. We can't do everything, but be true to yourself in the end and teach people. Sometimes people say things that's offensive. Maybe they didn't mean any harm. Maybe they did, but you let them know how it's harmful and really what it is that they should or shouldn't say next time. I don't want to shoot on anybody, but that right there, it'll get you in trouble. Don't say that again. I feel that 1000%. When I first joined Lind, it was so, I was like, all I have is a bachelor's degree. These people, you know, they're pursuing their master's, they're pursuing PhDs. Some of them are already doctors. Some of them are pursuing PhDs. Like, you know, and then here, I'm from the hood. Like, I, <laughs> I'm just a city kid who had parents who pushed to, to pursue education. You know what I mean? Like, my parents always held education to a high standard. Like, I, you know, I'm degreed because they believe that I needed to be, right? Like, and I owe them so much. So I, yes, I'll get this degree. Yes, you know, I'll push in some of these doors. In that space, it was just uncomfortable, right? Like, I never knew where I might have been doing something wrong, where I might have been, I don't want to say speaking out of turn, because, you know, I also am still going to talk junk, regardless of where I'm at. Like, it just is who I naturally am. But it was so uncomfortable in the beginning, in the midst of all of this, because no one also like you no one had ever done this even advocacy just doesn't make sense like where I'm from like it just is something that I have to describe and unpack and make sense I just make up positions every time somebody asks me what I do so that it just like sometimes I'm I'm a teacher I tell them I'm a teacher because you know it's easy like I don't know how else to really explain to bring it to light like this is what I do on you know on a bare bones kind of level so I I I get 1000% exactly what you're saying and also, it's a predominantly white program. Like, I, not only am I disabled, but I'm also, like, sometimes one of the only women of color in the room. And I don't want to speak for everybody. Like you said, I, I'm not a poster child. I don't know everything that needs to be known. But sometimes you miss the mark. Like, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes there's so much more room for improvement uh, and room for bigger discussions in a respectful way. And I think that that's where I've struggled the most is all right, how do I not respond emotionally to you right here in this moment? How do I say this in an educational fashion so I don't offend you with my deeper voice, my stronger, more authoritative tone? How do I manage my big emotions? And it's just really heavy and hard, I guess I would say. I agree with all of that. And being a black woman, things that you're passionate about can always be taken as the angry black woman versus a lot of time I'm like no I'm a mom I'm a community advocate that's where the passion comes from it's not anger or anything I just want you to hear me and understand and a lot of time it's taken as anger and when it comes off that way they don't hear anything you say so I've I've grown and learned a little bit to be a little more patient. I don't know. I'm able to sit at the table. I'm able to listen and I'm able to share what it is that I know and that I want others to hear. A lot of time it's hard 
sitting at the table and just listening. And they have this meeting all mapped out, planned out, and it doesn't leave space for you to come in on that part that needs correction. And at the end, you're leaving feeling defeated because you weren't able to speak up or say anything. Yeah, it's like you dropped the ball. Like, dang, I had one chance. I had one chance and I left it. And then, but also it's not only our job, right? Like, that's also the heavy part, right? Like, how do you look at you and be like, no, you know what? It wasn't, that wasn't my turn. And I have to be okay with that. It wasn't my turn and and I can't fix it all. So uh, we're getting close to our time here. And my last question to you is if, if you could, you know, give some sort of piece of advice to, to other you said's, you know, who are working to improve their connection to the community um, for black and brown families or not just the use as the lens. Like, what is it that you would, you know, what kind of piece of advice or wisdom would you depart on them? Piece of advice, being able to go through land and become staff. It was collaborative effort where we build together. I was given the opportunity to come in and share. So I'm I'm a real open and honest person. I don't know how to make or say things pretty because I feel they leave, they lose their meaning in translation. So I just say it open and honestly and I'll have to deal with the consequences later. But given space for that to happen, there's a lot of things with land, uses, etc., companies, organizations that's been done the certain way that they have for a long time and it seems as if it's working but it's working and it's working for who or it's working how have an open mind listen to the people of the community think about who it is that you want to serve or who you're targeting we have lots of underserved underprivileged underrepresented and the forgotten population i look in my community in wisconsin we are a state that's divided by race. But at the same time, we have a extremely high mass incarceration rate. People who are incarcerated, they have disabilities as well as children with disabilities. Sometimes listen to them. Ask them what it is. Talk to parents. Help parents learn and understand things. They may have one child who has a disability, but the family should be treated as a whole. I also think that you said need to talk to the other ones. We need to correspond and coordinate and not just the people who are running the you said's the programs that they run. They need to connect them with the other programs in different cities and states because that communication, something might be working well in one place and another place may have never thought of using something like that. This year we were able to work with, connect with UC Davis as well as Michigan's Lynn and do some things within our land program and our network and it has worked out wonderfully we've made wonderful connections but we made that by the network that was already there and being able to meet other people and ask hey who else do you think we should talk about talk with this about right now i'm trying to get a social network started and it was going to be just a small one in the state of Wisconsin. But right now we're working on social network for the Midwest. Hopefully that'll be rolling out in September. But we're collaborating because we do face a lot of the same social issues for families of color, 
especially with children and youth with special health care needs in the Midwest. And our meet, our needs aren't being met, but the community can come together and help one another. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your stories and for, for being so open with me. And I appreciate you so much. Um, we had a brief conversation before this. And, you know, when I met with some of your folks from Wisconsin, and I just think that, you know, all of us together, we are each other's business at the end of the day. And that's the only way we're going to progress. So thank you so much for saying that. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, J.D. Thank you for tuning in to AUCD Network Narratives. If this story has inspired you to make a change at your center or program, use the link in our show notes for resources and tools to help you lead on. We'd love to connect with you. So visit the AUCD website and click on the submit your story button at the top. We hope to hear from you soon.